Welcome to the 15th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of our podcast, our topics are a recap of Patrick's weekend predictions, the NBA Week in Review, and a look back at Super Bowl 55. Let's jump right in, starting with Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. And we'll start with Patrick's college basketball predictions, where number 10 Alabama was upset by number 18 Missouri, 68-65. Patrick incorrectly picked the Crimson Tide in this contest. Number 17 West Virginia beat number 23 Kansas, 91-79. Patrick correctly picked West Virginia in this game. Similarly, Patrick correctly picked Illinois, who was ranked number 12, to beat number 19 Wisconsin. The final score of that game was 75 to 60. And North Carolina beat Duke 91-87. Patrick also correctly picked North Carolina, making Patrick 3-1 in his NCAA basketball predictions for the weekend. Moving over now to Patrick's NBA picks. The Celtics beat the Clippers 119-115. Patrick incorrectly picked the Clippers in that game. The 76ers beat the Nets 124-108. Patrick correctly picked the 76ers. The Spurs beat the Rockets 111-106. Patrick incorrectly picked the Rockets, and the Jazz beat the Pacers, 103-95. Patrick correctly picked the Jazz, making Patrick 2-2 two two in his NBA weekend predictions for a grand total of 5-3 overall in this weekend predictions, meaning Patrick is now 58-23 overall in his predictions for this, this year. That is a 7-16 winning percentage this season. Patrick, your thoughts on the games and your picks? Well, I said that I might have a regression some week and come back down to earth a little bit. I would say that week, that this week, I mean, not necessarily a super regression, but, you know, I'm still still above 500 this week, still satisfied with my picks, but definitely, or not satisfied with my picks, but definitely okay with them. I can settle for being 5-3 and three every week for the rest of my life and still be pretty good. But, uh, you know, when I'm on the pace of... Uh, 725 winning percentage or whatever it was heading into this week. I'd like to keep in the 6-2, and 7-1-ish range if I can, uh, and I think I can, but I think I kind of went against my gut in a few of these games this week. I really like picking against the Clippers uh, just because it's fun, and if they don't lose, then I don't... <laughs> it's not like it'll ruin my life or anything, but I was actually very surprised that the Celtics pulled out that game. They really haven't been playing their best basketball, especially down the stretch late, and they actually pulled that game out by playing better in the fourth quarter than the Clippers did. Uh, really, really, honestly, the biggest game of that week, though, and the one that I really I, I threw in, uh, even though it wasn't the most important necessarily, was North Carolina-Duke. It It's just such a great all-time rivalry, and I really wish that they were good this year because that both of them were good, or at least one of them was, because this game was such a great game, and it's honestly worth a rewatch for me. Uh, if this was number one against number two, I probably would watch this game ten times this week, but considering that it's two unranked teams, I'm probably maybe only going to watch it the one time I did, maybe replay it once, but I think if that game had some ranked numbers attached to it, that might have been one of the best games of all time in that series. It was a great, great game. Yeah, certainly the uh, lack of teams being ranked and the lack of fans. Right, and a lot of less energy in that game. It's just not. It was a great great basketball game to watch. Uh, Thoughts on any of your other games uh, that you picked this weekend? Uh, Not really. Just overall pretty good picks. Uh, I mean, well, I said not satisfied, but still 5-3 is pretty good. 
I was surprised when I when I saw the game. It was Alabama was down by 22 actually in the second half, and somehow managed to get it all the way down to one point, and eight, and even managed to get it so close that some people can even blame the refs for not calling a foul on the last second shot. Uh, when you're down 22 and you get it to the point where you can blame the refs, that means you did a pretty good job. But yeah, I mean, all the losses were pretty close. Five points, four points, and three points in basketball games. Not big margins. So I'm, I'm still pretty satisfied. All right. Well, that wraps up our recap of Patrick's uh, weekly predictions here. Uh, as I mentioned, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website on Thursday. That's on the website 4thand24.com, the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. And with his predictions in the rearview mirror, Let's stick with the NBA a little bit and transition over to, uh, away from Patrick's picks, over to his thoughts on the NBA Week in Review. Uh, veterans of our podcast know that we start with the most impressive teams of the week. So, Patrick, who is your most impressive team of the last week in the NBA? I am not being biased. Everybody knows I am a Sacramento Kings fan, but 4-0 and for a team that was originally outside of the playoff picture Three games under 500, bringing themselves up to 12 and 11, one game above, and tied with the Warriors for the eighth seed in the West, beating the Pelicans, the Celtics, the Nuggets, and the Clippers all in one week. A very, very surprisingly impressive week from the Kings. I'm not going to lie, I saw the Kings' upcoming schedule after the Pelicans game and said, all right, good win, but what? where do we go from here? I saw the next three games and actually the next four because Kings play the 76ers soon. Uh, and I said, ooh, if we can, I mean, let's just go two and two here and call it a day and move on from there and maybe beat up on the bad teams for the rest of the year. But the, the four game win streak right now is huge. I mean, this is, these are the streaks that you need to go on if you want to make the playoffs in the West, because unlike the East where multiple teams below 500 might make it, you need to be many games above. So credit to the Kings for getting four wins against, honestly, well, three good teams than the Pelicans, but also, just no loss is just very good. Uh, seven out of eight games, I think they've won now. So, very good overall. Uh, second team. One, one, one note on the Kings there. Uh, even more impressive, they beat the Nuggets and Clippers in a back-to-back, having to fly. Right, actually Sacramento. in less than 24 hours. Yeah, 24 hours. Flew from Sacramento down to L.A. to play a game that I think started noon. At noon one, local noon time. One local time yeah. because of the Super Bowl. So, I mean, they beat the Nuggets and the Clippers within a span of less than 20 hours. So a really impressive week for the Kings. So sorry to interrupt you, but I thought that little snippet was uh, added to the importance of, of uh, how impressive their, their performance was this last week. Your second most impressive team I interrupted you was? The Milwaukee Bucks. I've been, <laughs> I've been highly critical of them on the podcast, to be quite honest. I, I, don't, I don't have anything against them, no animosity, but I just don't like it when teams that are supposed to be the best and really like assert their dominance over all the bad teams start slumping. But this week... The Bucks were able to beat those teams that they should be beating, and they also snuck in a win over the Trailblazers, the three wins that I said they should have gotten. They beat the Cavaliers twice and the Pacers, but the Cavaliers have beaten the Nets twice in a row in a back-to-back, and the Cavaliers seem to seem to be a pretty a pretty steady team down at that 9-10-ish range, so I don't think that beating them in a back-to-back can be understated necessarily. I mean, definitely for a top team in the East. This is what should be expected out of the Bucks' dominance week after week. They're, they brought themselves back up to second in the Eastern standings, Eastern Conference standings overall. But I just think it was a very good week from them. The Pacers are a team that they have to keep beating. The Cavaliers are also a team that they have to keep beating. And the Trailblazers, it's a playoff team. So who not, anytime you get a win over a playoff team is a good win. Yep, and as we've mentioned, tough to win uh, two times in a row this year in the NBA when you're 
playing back-to-back -back against the same team. All right, let's move on to your third most impressive team of the last week in the NBA. I gave it to the Los Angeles Lakers. They are second in the other conference, the West, because they beat the Hawks, the Nuggets, and the Pistons. Now, not necessarily the most impressive schedule, most impressive wins, but the four-game win streak has brought them from third in the West to second right over the Clippers and only one game back of the Jazz, who, I mean, they went on an 11-game win streak, so it's pretty hard to catch somebody right after that. About 25 games in the season when a team won half of the games of the year in one stretch. Uh, but overall, I just liked what I saw from the Lakers generally this week. I think, again, kind of like the Bucks, this is a week where you got to go 3-0. you got to go undefeated. you got to just beat these teams that you need to beat. And they actually lost to the Pistons a few weeks before this, or a week or two ago, and now beat them in double overtime. I don't know what I don't know why they're struggling against the Pistons specifically, but you know they need those late they need those late game experiences with this with this kind of retooled roster. I mean, obviously we know what LeBron's going to do when it gets into clutch time, same as Anthony Davis. But it's always good to know that these teams are play, that they are playing well in the clutch. Getting into a double overtime game early in the season is probably. Very good for them and bodes well for later when they might be in a double overtime game in the playoffs. They already have this experience, so very right, important. And on the other side of things, let's move to your most disappointing teams of the week, starting with your most disappointing team of the last week in the NBA. I gave it to the Brooklyn Nets. They kind of swapped places with the Bucks this week. Um, the, one of the better teams that should be beating up on a lot of these teams. They only beat the Clippers this week. I don't know what's happening to the Clippers. Um, <laughs> and they lost to the Wizards, the Raptors, and the Sixers. I think that they should have definitely beaten the Wizards. If anybody watched that game, they know that the Wizards scored seven points in ten seconds to take the lead and win the game by three. But I don't even think it matters how many points they scored in the last ten seconds. Let's just take a second to, no to, to note that the Nets just gave up 149 points to a team that's 14th in the East. If they wanted, If they give up that many points... To the, to the 14th place team, what are they going to do with the Bucks, uh, the Heat if they make a run, the Pacers, the, all these teams, that if they can't defend these bad teams, what are they going to do against the good ones? That's the main reason why I had them, why I have them here is also even in that Clippers game, they still gave up more than 120 points. I think they've gone seven games in a row or so giving up 120, which is not something you like to see. Yeah, too much talent on the roster to be... Uh... Landing on your list is the most disappointing team of the week, but like you said, the Bucks have been there, and so we'll see what happens in the weeks to come. Maybe they can turn it around. Got some new team members, getting a new team member, getting Kyrie back. Maybe there's a little chemistry. Who knows? Yeah, but they they need to commit to playing on the defensive end. We know they have the athleticism to do it. James Harden made individual great plays last year. Durant's been doing it forever. They, they definitely can be good on defense, but I just think they need to show more commitment to that. We know they can score. That doesn't that doesn't need any work. Well, and as you know, uh, defense usually is about effort and commitment because they certainly have the talent. So uh, let's move off the Nets and move to your next most disappointing team in the NBA. I gave it to the, India, to the Indiana Pacers. No, nothing, I mean, there weren't actually a lot of teams this week that I don't think there was a single team that went uh, winless this week, so good for everybody, I guess. But, um... I still gave it to the Pacers just because they went 1-4. They only beat the Grizzlies. They lost to the Sixers, the Bucks, the Pelicans, and the Jazz. Yeah, they played top three teams three times of each conference with the Sixers, the Bucks, and the Jazz. But they were very, very close in the Jazz game. I think they narrowed the lead down to two in the fourth quarter and then just kind of deflated from there and really let the game go. And they should be beating the Pelicans. I mean, this is not... The, the Pacers, I, I get it, they're still shorthanded, but... 
they might have to deal with this for a long time because we don't really know what Karis LeVert's uh, injury timetable entails and also TJ Warren's foot surgery. We don't really know what that entails. They're, they're both out indefinitely, I think, at the moment. And they need to stay in the playoff race very, very competitive so that they can get into a higher seed once those two get back. All right, and finally, your third most disappointing team of the past week in the NBA. I gave it to the Grizzlies because they had been hot for so long and then went 1-3 and three and are now tied for 10th in the West. They only beat the Spurs this week. They lost to the Pacers, the Rockets, and the Pelicans. And really, those last two losses were the big deal for me. I excused the one against the Pacers. That's a, that's a better team that should be beating them. But... I, I think if you want to get into the playoffs, like last year they choked they choked their playoff appearance in the bubble. They went, I think, 1-7 or 2-6 when all they needed to do was win four games and they automatically would have, I think, gotten the gotten out of the play-in game scenario and would have been in the playoffs as an eight seed. And when you start having these stretches, I mean, it's early in the season still, but you want to keep consistent throughout the year and show that you're going to stay in the playoffs. And this team wants to be a force. They clearly have the talent to do so. John Morant, Brandon Clark, they're all great players they have there. They, I mean, I guess they're young too, but I just think they need to beat teams like the Rockets, just even if they're more experienced, and definitely the Pelicans, who seem to be the inferior young team. All right, well, as we always do with our NBA recap, we like to end on a positive note. So let's end up this uh, segment with your... Player of the Week in the NBA. I gave it to De'Aaron Fox. He helped the Kings to the four wins that we mentioned this week. He averaged 31 points, 8.8 assists, 2.8 rebounds, and 50 on 54, uh, 54.7% shooting. And he also had 12.3 points per, per fourth quarter this week on 59.4% shooting. And honestly, he should be in the All-Star game. I'm going to take a minute here to, to reflect on this. He's averaging 22.5 points, 6.5 rebounds, and about 3.5, or 6.5 assists, and about 3.5 rebounds on the season. He has the numbers, too. It's, ma- it's mainly because this is a fan vote, and it's basically a popularity contest. We saw people like Taco fall up in the top 10 on the initial returns last year. Luckily, he's not qualified this year, so we don't have to deal with that again. But it is, it is frankly a popularity contest, and it kind of sucks for these small market players like your John Morant's and your De'Aaron Fox's. John Morant, because he's so young and polarizing, he's, he's getting the praise he deserves. But when you're not a rookie and you're a few years in and you're in a small market, you, you're, you basically have no chance of making the All-Star game because it really is a popularity contest. But De'Aaron Fox needs to be in it. Well, maybe he will be, uh, even if he doesn't get voted in, seeing as how there's a lot of players grumbling about there being an All-Star game and... Maybe we'll see a boycott. A lot of players think it's uh, shouldn't be doing it right now. They should be taking time off. He actually was the first, however, to say it's kind of stupid to hold one, though. So I don't know if he would take us up on that opportunity anyway. But maybe he doesn't want to be an All Star this year. Maybe he'll save it for next year. Well, that wraps up our look back at the NBA for this week. Uh, we'll now turn our attention to a look back at Super Bowl Fifty Five. In our last podcast, I predicted a blowout in Super Bowl Fifty Five, predicting that the Kansas City Chiefs would blow out the Tampa Bay Buccaneers by 15 points. Uh, what happened was the Tampa, Beer, Tampa Bay Buccaneers stunned the Kansas City Chiefs in dominating fashion, 31-9. Tom Brady gets his seventh Super Bowl win, fifth Super Bowl MVP at the age of 43, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers get their second franchise Lombardi Trophy as the first team to play a Super Bowl in the home stadium. Patrick, as I mentioned, both you and I, both you and I and most others predicted a Chiefs win. You predicted a close game, and as I said, I predicted a blowout. 
what went wrong for the Chiefs and what went right for the Bucks in Super Bowl 55? Well, first I would like to uh, address the fact that I did say, state that I was just covering my bases. <laughs> and it looks like I did a good job of it because now you look like you very badly predicted the game. And at least I said it would be close, right? Uh, <laughs> Hold on, I, I got the key to the game right, but keep going. We'll yeah, okay, okay. Um, yeah, what went wrong for the Chiefs is that Patrick Mahomes... I think through the first 40 dropbacks had 17 hurries on him. He had all, it felt like no time to throw the ball ever. I don't know exactly the definition, like the textbook definition of what a hurry is, but it felt like he was hurried in some way on every play of that game. I think they, the, the Buccaneers, maybe they didn't get credit for quote unquote hurries when he was at forced out of the pocket. But he didn't really have much time, and he was mostly on almost every play catching the snap, looking through his first read, then seeing a defensive end right in his face and having to roll out to one side of the field and juke that defensive end like a running back to get the throw off. Yeah, I think uh, I think Mahomes threw more uh, plays spinning around or spinning, diving to the ground than he did standing up in the pocket. Um, Tampa Bay defense pressured Mahomes all night long, never looked like he was comfortable in the pocket. We did say in our podcast, and it's the one thing we did get right, that the key to the game would be whether or not Tampa Bay could get pressure and wondered if the injury to Eric Fisher and some shuffling along, along the offensive line would, would contribute to that. But um, your thoughts, Patrick? We also addressed that, or you actually asked me what did Tampa Bay need to do to win the game, and I addressed how they kind of, in the first game, their scheme wasn't good enough to stop Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and... This game, they went into too high safety on 82% of the plays, and I think that made a huge difference. It looked like Tampa Bay was playing almost a different defense than they'd been playing the entire season. It looked like they had gone from a complete blitzing, just blitz nonstop, and we're going to get there, and it doesn't matter what our coverage is, to almost kind of the Rams style of the four-man rush and drop everybody back. They were playing... They were playing zone. They were doubling. Uh, they were doubling Hill and Kelsey on almost every play, at least bracketing them between two guys with zones, making sure that one guy would take the inside, one guy would take the outside. And really, it didn't matter where the Chiefs would line them up because they could not get open quick enough against that bracket to the point where, as soon as they could have gotten open, it would have been way too late because the Chiefs could not protect Patrick Mahomes enough. And he can't be throwing on, I mean, he's Patrick Mahomes, but I don't think anybody can throw on the run, escaping a defensive end, with the defensive end actually tacking, tackling him while he's throwing it across his body, across the field. And that's what he would have had to have done multiple times for him to have really produced enough to win this game, considering how much Tampa Bay ended up scoring, too. Yeah, Bruce Arians actually said that that first quarter of their first matchup, where I think he'll have more than 200 receiving yards, yeah. they had a discussion at halftime of that game, and they said, they were not going to let him beat him single-handedly, and he wasn't going to be really seeing single coverage. And ironically, that learning lesson from that game earlier in the season paid dividends. Todd Bowles uh, and company drew up a great defensive scheme, and really the Chiefs looked like they didn't look. They looked like the Chiefs of I don't know, maybe one Joe Montana, Alex Smith days, Alex Smith, Joe Montana in his last season. But I also think, uh, kind of like you said, that the Tyree Kill game gave them a little bit of a lesson, and. You know, I kind of commented on it a few times during this playoffs that the Chiefs like to play with their food a little bit during the regular season, and they were kind of keeping everybody close and making everybody think they had a chance, and it's almost like 
them blowing out the Buccaneers so hard showed the Buccaneers everything they needed to do to make the unstoppable force able to be stopped. It's like they showed how much they could use Tyreek Hill, and then as soon as he got 200 yards, they they over they kind of over pursued him, and then Kelsey went had a pretty good game for the rest of that game. And I feel like maybe if they had done a little bit of playing with their food a little bit more, kept that game a little bit closer, then maybe the Buccaneers would have... I think a lot of teams, they don't like to adapt when they think that they should have won a game and they can target a few key plays. They'll just say, let's just go out there, play the same game, and just make those few plays that we need to make. But when they got destroyed so hard like they did in the first half it kind of allowed them to just say, okay, let's go figure out what we need to do on offense and defense to stop them. And Kansas City, maybe they weren't taking their foot off the gas in the second half, and they were trying, but they just couldn't get anything done with what Buccaneer, with what the Buccaneers did in the second half, and they figured out what worked in that second half of the game. Kind of used it as a kind of testing grounds, you could say. So what, what Interesting. The, the Chiefs' ability, like you say, to play with their food a little bit and then uh, just have these comebacks where they're down 10 points, no big deal. Um, they've done it routinely. I, I, I wonder if that played into, and that cockiness played into um, the strategy at the end of the half where Tampa Bay was content to run out the clock. Kansas City looked didn't look like Kansas City. looked discombobulated. And a lot of teams might take the approach, great, let's just get into the locker room, cut the bleeding, give us give a chance, you know, stop the bleeding, give us a chance to reassess a long halftime, in the Super Bowl, we get the ball to open the to open the second half, and instead they called timeout and allowed the Bucks to convert on a third down when they were just content to run out the clock. And the the, the Bucks went down and scored. What do you what do you think? Well, the thing that I say about that play is I think it happens all the time. There's always a situation like that. It I feel like it happens in thirty five ish percent of every game in thirty five percent of games, and. Whoever scores the touchdown looks like the better coach at the end of it every single time. It's always, if one team calls the timeouts, they get the ball back and they get a field goal in 35 seconds, then it's, wow, and you see that's because uh, Andy Reid was so aggressive that they were able to get those timeouts, that they were able to get those timeouts in and kick the field goal, and now look at us, we're at 14-6 to at the half instead of 14-3. to So, I mean, I think it's, I think it always goes both ways, and I think that this time it just kind of backfired. But, you know, Bruce Arians' motto is no risk it, no biscuit. Andy Reid kind of follows without saying it much. A similar mentality. The Kansas City Chiefs definitely like to play. Very risky. And I just and I just think, I don't think they expected to get two 20-yard pass interference plays in the same drive. Because without that, it would have been maybe a field goal at best for the Buccaneers. And that's nowhere near out of reach. But I felt like maybe the 15 points just made it feel so much worse because it made it Two touchdowns, very obviously. So I think that's what really made the big difference. Yeah, well, so the, the second week in a row, the Bucks get a, a big touchdown heading heading into the locker room, getting a huge momentum, extending their lead. But let's rewind a little bit and touch on something you mentioned. Uh, I know you and I talked about this, and obviously the broadcasters talked about it, um, folks calling the game and even the guys at halftime, uh, the officiating. Uh, well, let's just touch a little bit on that because it obviously paid, played a big role not only in that final uh, touchdown drive for the Bucks heading in to the uh, to the locker room for the first half, end of the first half, but also the first half in general. Yeah, I just think in general, it, it felt like a few of the calls, definitely some of the calls on Kansas City were very, 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 very obvious holds, and it's something that Bruce Arians probably told the refs to look out for, 
because the Chiefs do get away with that a lot. I, I know from watching them a lot that I always see them holding and they're never almost never called for it. And it always feels like, eh, it wouldn't impact the game that much anyway. But in the Super Bowl, it definitely does. So I definitely think Bruce Arians probably told the rest before the game, hey, look out for Breland, look out for Matthew. They like to hold us. Please look at it. But sometimes, especially the Breland pass interference on Mike Evans, I mean, the guys tripped on each other. They, they got caught with each other's feet. And on Breland's way down, he accidentally tapped him in the calf. I just don't see how that's a pass interference. That ended up, I think, what, a, a 25-ish yard penalty because it was spot of the foul yes. on a big 30-yard play. And that was actually where I felt like it, it looked exactly to me like the Scotty Miller touchdown at the end of the half that you talked about against the Packers, where it was just, let's throw it up and see if something can happen. And in the Packers game, they played bad coverage and they just let him score pretty much. Uh, and in this game, they got bailed out by the call. And I just don't think that I also think that that plays into the hindsight of saying that Andy Reid's calling of timeouts was bad because without that pass interference call, they probably do kneel on second down with about 25 seconds left, knowing that they can't really get 80 yards in that amount of time. So, yeah, so it's big impact on the game, that call. It was. There were some other uh, big, big impact plays in the game, some that you thought could have been momentum turners for Kansas City, although it just seemed like they had happened and Kansas City never could seize the momentum. Others were Kansas City blunders, the biggest of which um, Kansas City jumped off sides on a field goal. Uh, instead of getting three points, Tampa Bay goes in and scores a touchdown. They had a big goal line stand. Um, Kansas City did. Couldn't capitalize on it. Le- leads to a short field, leads to a touchdown. Um, snap over Brady's head that uh, causes them to have a long field goal. Actually set up a fourth and 24, so that was a little personal note for us, I guess, in the game. Um, just It seemed like it just wasn't Kansas City's night. I would also say, they, they mentioned it on the broadcast, nobody's ever gone for a 99-yard drive in a Super Bowl game. And the goal line stand definitely was a momentum turner for Kansas City's defense, but it almost felt like, I, I think we're, you you didn't mention something, and I think people won't talk about this play, but it really needs to be talked about. Tommy Townsend punted the ball 60 yards downfield, and the ball got all the way to the 35-yard line. But Kansas City got called for a hold. Yeah. On their own 20. It brought the punt back to the 10. And he shanked the punt out of bounds for less than, I think, 30 yards. And they gave them the ball on the 35-yard line, which which led to that, which led to Tampa Bay having a short field. And Kansas City forced a three and out. But then they jumped off sides, leading to that touchdown on that field goal play. And it's almost like if the punt had just held up and there was no hold, a three and out on the 35 gets the Chiefs the ball back probably at their own 25-30-ish. And, and no scores for Tampa Bay, but instead you have, you lead to that fourth down and two that ends up being that offsides when they were already going to get the field goal anyway, and now you get more points out of it. So I think that play probably won't even be mentioned at all, but it was probably one of the bigger penalties in the game. Also, by the way, that was a very obvious penalty if you see it, uh, but it's still another one of those calls where it really did affect the game. Well, Patrick, I don't know if you have any further thoughts on the game. Otherwise, we'll wrap it up and we'll take a look at a preview of uh, what the odds makers in Las Vegas think about next year's Super Bowl favorites. Uh, I mean, overall, we, we didn't necessarily talk about individuals that much. This game felt like a very team-oriented game in general. Mahomes was kind of playing uh, half-decent in spite of his offensive line. 
and the two interceptions and pretty low, at least for him, completion percentage are probably a result of that offensive line not protecting him. The running game was okay for Kansas City, but also couldn't really do it much because they got down so early because the line couldn't establish the run early in the game. And maybe the wide receivers weren't getting open that much. So that It felt really like a team game in Tampa Bay. It wasn't just the run defense. It wasn't just the defensive tackles. It was the ends. It was the linebackers blitzing. It was the linebackers in coverage. It was the corners. It was the safeties. It felt like a team game for everybody. And honestly, I think if I were to give the best unit to anybody, I think I would give it to the Buccaneers linebackers because if they were asked to drop back in coverage... Levante David covered Kelsey. If they were asked to, if they were asked to rush, Shaq Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul were in the backfield getting sacks or rushing Mahomes. They did, they did really everything for that team, and also the Buccaneers' offensive line keeping Brady upright pretty much the entire game. After I think the first quarter, I don't think he got sacked after the first quarter, and also I don't think they had a few negative plays on their first few drives, but then after that, kind of felt like everything was going forward and everything. Every run felt like it was a big hole and it was barely saved from a touchdown by a by a second-level defender on Kansas City, and Brady really felt like he didn't get pressured that much. Yeah, you're right. I mean, people are going to talk about a lot of things that we talked about, but the, the Tampa Bay offensive line blowing gaping holes, gaping holes through the Kansas yeah. City defense um, and keeping Brady clean. And Brady the, Brady's stats were good. There were not a lot of spectacular plays. It was more like he was a game manager this game. Um uh, so I, I, that's a great point, bringing up the offensive line of Tampa, who I didn't hear any credit really during the game or in post-game coverage. Yeah, and again, also, I, I mentioned it, the, the, the thing that I thought would be the big difference in this game is that Mahomes is really great against the Blitz and Brady is not. And in fact, well, the difference is they didn't get any Blitzes on Brady, so it doesn't even matter how good he is against the Blitz. They didn't try to Blitz because they had to send extra guys into coverage. They had to send guys into run-stopping mode. And then on Kansas City's side, Mahomes couldn't do much against the Blitz because it, was, it wasn't it was one guy that he had to evade and kind of throw over after a second and a half, after maybe one and a half, two seconds. It was like a half a second lightning speed in your face. You've got to get out of the pocket now. <laughs> yeah, one thing we didn't mention, not about the game, but about the season. The NFL managed to get a full season in. Minimal disruption. There was some craziness with certain teams. And I mean, they Tuesday did. They did. Sh- they had Tuesday and Wednesday games. They like, shuffled around schedules. Added games from week six to week fifteen. But with, with all all that being said, pretty minimal disruptions given what was going on in the country, and managed to uh, get us to a Super Bowl on time um, without any juggling of the playoff schedule, without any major impact to the teams in the playoffs with with folks missing games due to COVID. Yes, we had a few teams. Especially the, the Browns in the playoffs, though. Oh, Probably the right. only we team. Forgot about that. But they Probably the only win. team. But they won in the they game where they had the a game. lot of players out. So, yeah. So, I mean, all in all, I think the NFL is pretty happy um, with how they were able to get this season and get the Super Bowl in. Um, actually had some fans in the stands, in, in, obviously, at this game, uh, but in, in certain jurisdictions. Um, overall, uh, you know, to me, the NFL season, even my view, which my, is my view on sports all during COVID, it's, it's been a great distraction. Um, and the fact that they were able to put on the games and uh, everybody was able to have a little bit of normalcy, maybe smaller Super Bowl gatherings than normal. Um, I bet the TV ratings are the highest ever just because there were fewer gatherings and more people sitting at home watching the games themselves. Um, but uh, I think you know, it was a reminder that sports can be uh, a great sense of entertainment, um, hopefully a unifying force, and hopefully next year we get to have tailgates and people in the stands together and really 
have those communal efforts that what they're what sports all about. I don't know if you want to wax philosophical like I did, Patrick, or uh, you care to move on to the next segment, um, which is a look forward at the odds for next year's Super Bowl. Obviously, early odds. Don't know what's going to happen with the very NFL very draft. early opening odds. Yeah. We still have people texting quarterbacks saying they want to reunite with them. So yeah, we we, early, we but still, we don't know. There's free agency. There's trades. There's uh, there's the draft retirement. Uh, but with that being said, um, the early odds are out, and the Chiefs are the favorites to win Super Bowl Fifty Six uh, in Los Angeles at SoFi Stadium. Eleven to two odds, followed by the Packers. So I assume that's influenced by the Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Rumored contract extension at nine to one odds. Uh, your defending Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Bucks are third favorite at eleven to one. And then next, the Ravens and the Bills are twelve to one odds, with your Los Angeles Rams thirteen to one odds to be the second team to host a Super Bowl and the second team to win a Super Bowl in their home stadium next year. Patrick. Your thoughts on those early odds? Definitely very very early, but I think the trend that we're seeing here is. Uh... Favoritism of the young quarterbacks, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, very high on this, on this betting, uh, on these betting odds. I mean, out of the four teams that were in the conference championship games, I think all four are present there in those top in that top six, along with the Ravens and the Rams. But I, I, I'm a little, stu- I'm actually a little shocked that the Buccaneers open under the Packers after beating them at Lambeau with minimal fans. I would assume that the Buccaneers might get back there next year, actually hosting that game now that they have kind of their rough patch under their belt with the with the roster changes. But you know, Vegas is going to be Vegas. They like to bet on the trending teams. That's why the Rams are so high up there. We um, had Stafford. Right, and we'll see, and we'll see what that what the Matt Stafford situation is. Probably after Week One, that'll get significantly adjusted one way or another after seeing how he plays. But you know, it's it's always it's always odd to see the odds at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, you've got some teams fueled by, as you mentioned, some dynamic young quarterbacks, and then. And I guess I guess the Chiefs are one because of the revenge factor is probably the reason they're up there. But yeah, is Matt Stafford thirty? How old is he? Don't know, 30, mid, mid, 33, 34, so you got a something. Bunch of young bucks here, and then you got three old guys in, in Brady, Rodgers, and Stafford, who are a, a top, up, up there in the favorites quarterbacking these teams. Well, that'll uh, wrap up this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Saturday, February 13th, where we will take a very deep dive into college basketball. In the meantime, be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his NCAA tournament bracket predictions and his picks for next weekend's game on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.